Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankin, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program between the covers is brought to you in part through the support of propeller a magazine of books music art film and life and its publishing imprint propeller books visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at Propeller Mag. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the poet and translator Idra Novi. Novi's books include the poetry collections The Next Country, a finalist for the Forward Book of the Year Award, Exit Civilian, and Clarice the Visitor, a collaboration with the visual artist Erica Baum. Novi has written for the New York Times, NPR's All Things Considered, and the Paris Review, and is the translator of the works of several prominent Brazilian writers, most recently of Clarice Lispector's novel, The Passion According to G.H. for New Directions. She teaches creative writing at Princeton University and is here today to talk about her debut novel, Ways to Disappear, a novel whose main character is herself a translator who leaves her life in Pittsburgh to try to find her mysteriously disappeared author in Brazil. The New York Times describes Ways to Disappear as follows. This lush and tightly woven novel manages to be a meditation on all forms of translation while still charging forward with the momentum of a bullet. And this quote from Novi herself might serve as the best description of the book. I like the gray areas between genres, prose that reads like poetry, 
that moves like a thriller, that falls over a reader like poetry. Welcome to Between the Covers, Idra Novi. Thank you for having me, David. Many critics and readers, and you yourself, have commented on how Ways to Disappear is, is an unusual amalgam of elements um, and tones. It's an international thriller. It's a meditation on art and translation, and it's often really funny, even comedic. And the novel opens with, I think, its most whimsical moment. Um, we have the celebrated Brazilian novelist Beatriz Jagoda disappearing. And she does this by, the, well, she's last seen with a suitcase and a cigar disappearing into the canopy of an almond tree. And I was wondering about this striking image that you start with, if this it made me wonder about the origins of the impulse to write this book in the first place. Was was this the image that you started with? This was the image that uh, that led me to write the book. I think it happens a lot that, you know, you get stuck on an image in your mind and its meaning begins to sort of uh, pull at you, you know. And I, I had a day where I had to be at three places at once. I think it might have even been four. And I really just wanted to curl up and read. And I thought maybe I should just climb into a tree and miss all of my obligations and read. And I just got stuck on that image of, you know, this being this woman writer climbing into a tree with a book to escape her life. And then everything came from there. I don't feel like Ways to Disappear is a book of magical realism, though I feel like this may be a a, a faint or a nod in that direction. I, I wonder if it is. But one thing that it, this whimsical moment at the beginning does that I think it's important that it's at the beginning is that it sort of sets us off of what a typical expectation would be from a, for a novel. Um, like the narrator, we're going to go into a world that we don't, we can't really read the signs and symbols of. Is, is that why this is the beginning of, of Ways to Disappear in some regards? Yeah, I think similar, you know, in Dennis Johnson's, you know, Jesus's Son, or even in Train Dreams, like, or in Karen Russell's work, or in George Saunders, that you know you're entering a world of, world of slippery realism, and that in some places it operates as realism, in some places things may take a turn into the uncertain. And, and I think that that that's a really fascinating place in American fiction right now. I think Kelly Link is also doing that. Um, and Rivka Galchin is doing that because we don't have a movement for that. We don't have a name for it. And so there are no, you, you're just basically making up as you go. And it feels like a renegade place to write as an American writer. And mm. I like that aspect of it. And was that a, a slight nod towards a tradition in, in Latin America also? Or, or would <clears throat> I, I don't feel like that really is the tradition that you're writing in. Is in the book as a whole, but it feels like it has an echo of. You know, of that I, I mean, I translated two Brazilian poets who do a kind of slippery realism in, in their work. One of them, Manuel de Barros, is from the Pantanal, which is the wetlands of Brazil. I've been and, there, actually. Oh, you've been to the. That's amazing. <laughs> you may be one of very few people I have met during this book tour who have. Um, what did you think of the Pantanal? I, lo- I loved it. I love those. Uh, have you been there? Um, only um, in my dreams as a translator. I, I would I would imagine whoever this writer is from there had some pretty strange creatures because there were a lot of strange creatures in that swamp. It is full of strange creatures. In fact, in the poems, he becomes the strange creatures. So he'll, you know, he'll be sitting somewhere and he will become the creatures that are on the ground. So you'll be sitting with a man on his porch watching, you know, the fields out in the swamplands. And the next thing you know, he's an ant on the floor. And so I think that was an influence for me because... Um, 
I, I translate the writers I admire and I learn from them as a writer. I definitely came to translation as a writer. So I, I, I admire their innovations. And so it's the deepest kind of reading to translate. And mm. I think that that became my apprenticeship as a writer. It's a really cheap way to get an MFA to translate. You don't pay anyone. You just <laughs> sit down and get deeply into these works and they teach you. Huh. Well, let's talk about, I think, one of the central philosophical questions of the book, which is partially a translation question. Very early on, you present us with this this question, because our protagonist, Emma, the translator for Beatrice, is she goes to Brazil to find her author who's disappeared. And she does this based on a philosophical conviction. And the conviction is that because she's the translator of this author, she understands this author better than anyone else. She could best predict perhaps what this author's next moves would be based on this great knowledge of her text. Mm. But when she arrives in Brazil and meets the author's family, they have a totally different opinion. The idea that it's the unwritten word. It's what you see somebody do that they don't write down on a day-to-day level. The things that they do that they don't represent themselves with necessarily that is the true person. And this isn't a question that I think the book answers, but it's a question that hovers over everything that happens in the book. So I'm curious, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and also talk about if you lean one way or the other in that polarity. Well, I think we all only know slivers of each other. Um, And uh, Leslie Jameson, when she read the book, she sent me this lovely note about it. She says that I see ways to disappear as being about the ways that we do appear to each other. Mm. And um, I love that reading of it. And I, and I think we do appear to each other in slivers and that if you know someone in one capacity. You know them as a neighbor. You know them um, uh, at work. You know them as a professor. You know them as a writer. You know them as a friend. But there's all these other slivers and other ways that they're, you know, in the world that you don't know. And so I think I was really interested in that because I could see that happening to me and to other people, you know, that I knew were, um, you know, I was, I was, you know, as a professor, as a translator, as a writer, as a mother, as a spouse, as a sister, all these, and all of my roles, I, no one really knew what I was doing in the other roles. And actually it's okay. And I actually would never want to reconcile those identities because I don't think they can be reconciled. And I think it would be, would make me a narrower person, would make any of us a narrower person to try and reconcile all the different people that you are. Would also be, you know, just more inhibiting and boring. And so I think the kind of person I am, you know, when I'm trying to be a professor and be appropriate in the classroom is not who I would be, you know, if I go out dancing with my friends on the weekend. Right. And thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but inevitably, I, I I think of this conviction of Emma uh, to go to Brazil because she knows her author so well. I can't help but imagine you as a translator behind Emma and wonder or presume that um, when you're translating some writers, when you're completely obsessed with carrying this book over into into our language, that you might feel this mystical or magical connection that there's no, like a union, a sense of... Um, inexplicable connection that you could I felt that inexplicable connection with Clarice Lispector since I first read her in college. And one of the reasons I learned Portuguese because I wanted to read her in the original. So that connection was really strong. Um, 
for 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 years before Barbara Epler called me and asked me to um, submit a translation for that project, and and you know then I met Ben Moser and things went from there. But um, I found this book of hers that isn't in English, where she wrote letters while she was living in Washington D.C., which then led to Clarice the Visitor, and so um, she you know was deceased before I started writing this book, so I couldn't send her an email um, like I have with other writers and ask some questions mm-hmm. about what I was translating, and so. Um, she became this character in my mind, which, of course, when someone is a character in your mind, has nothing to do with the person that that writer was, you know. And if you do start speaking to someone in your mind, whether it's, you know, as a translator or someone that you've lost touch with and they just continue to be like a, a you know, a presence in your thoughts, that they become something for you that is not necessarily who that person is in real life. And I was aware of that, but I also, being you know, a writer, let my imagination run. And slowly, slowly, uh, she became Beatrice Yagoda. <laughs> yeah. So it is, a, it is a connection. The, the high-cheekbone, green-eyed Jewish-Brazilian yeah. is a nod towards Clarice. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I was, you know, a high cheekbone, green eyed writer myself living in Brazil and Chile. And so I also um, was pulling on, you know, the the sort of misunderstandings that I also experienced there, you know, and just, you know, I, 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 but the interesting thing about, you know, in the United States, of course, we don't. Everyone has hyphenated identities and, and, and limited ways that we are receptive to each other. But in Brazil, if you are born somewhere else, you're sort of always seen as an outsider there. Mm-hmm. And I think being Jewish didn't help in that regard either. Mm-hmm. So um, she had a speech impediment and people uh, would always say that she had an accent. But she came to Brazil. Uh, Clarice Lispector came to Brazil when she was two months old. She did not have an accent. Right. <laughs> so I, I was interested in how what does that do for your writing when you're always seen as an outsider? And, and I grew up in western Pennsylvania and um, so there was no art really happening in the little you know rust belt dying town where I was born and I very much felt like an outsider there and I think I related to that in her work also. In case you just tuned in you're listening to Between the Covers and we're talking today to Idra Novi about her debut novel Ways to Disappear. Tell us a little bit about the epigraph. Uh, For a time, we became the same word. It could not last. How how did you choose that? Uh, I mean, it seems like the perfect epigraph about this union around around text that can't potentially last in in the real world. But uh, tell us a little bit about, about how you chose to put it at the beginning. Well, I think when you fall in love with a book as a reader, as as a translator, which is a kind when you are a kind of reader, um, it's a love affair, and you know the book will end, and you know the affair will end, and I think that creates some of the fervor, some of the kind of bodily um, spell that it kind of casts over you, that you 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 kind of become enveloped in its world because you know it will end, and I think that if a book didn't end, if it was you know two thousand and five hundred and seventy nine nights, and it would be longer than your lifetime, you wouldn't be able to give yourself over to it the same way. And so I think you can just, you know, give yourself over as a reader or as a translator because you know you'll be freed of it at mm. some point. There are a whole bunch of ways you could read the title, Ways to Disappear. But the first one is a particularly delightful one, and it's this l- linguistic intrigue around the the cultural specificity of disappearance. So there's a word uh, in por- Brazilian Portuguese for a certain type of disappearing I'm going to mispronounce it. It's embora. Yeah. Embora? Embora. Yeah. Embora. <laughs> embora, um, which is not translatable in English. So, or not easily translatable no. into English. Yeah. 
Um, and it's relevant to this book. So tell us about that way of disappearing. What is this untranslatable word as best as you can well, tell us? Well, uh, Marisa Monchi, who's a well-known uh, Brazilian singer, sort of a legend, legendary singer, she has a great song about going, embora, which basically means I'm going out. And you can in English say I'm going out, but usually we expect a little more specificity in English, especially in the United States. I'm going out to the store. I'm going out for an hour. I'm going out. Um, I'll be right back. But to just say I'm going out, usually we would say, what for? When are you coming back? That we expect the sense of agency. We expect to know when someone's returning. And I think in Brazil, um, you don't really have to say anymore. You can just say, vambora, and you go out. And so I, um, having lived there and having translated a lot of Brazilian literature, was wondering what it would be like to sort of go permanently embora and also to go uh, embora via an uh, arbore, so to go, you know, um, arboreally embora. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yeah. a play there yeah. <laughs> with the tree. Um, so it's it's pretty cool, I think, that the the very basis of the plot is something that's an untra an untranslatable phenomenon. Um, and there's this interesting moment it, that happens in the book uh, where Emma, the translator, is recalling something that her author is say says to her: for for translation to be an art, you have to make the uncomfortable but necessary transgressions that an artist makes. In other words. Um, that a translator shouldn't be necessarily entirely dutiful. That may perhaps obviously to some that the translator is doing a creative, constructive act as well. Tell us about that and and your thoughts on, on that phenomenon and on Beatrice's advice. I wrote the novel I couldn't find. I had come across a number of books that had translators in them, and the portrayals just didn't ring true to me. And I, I think translators, the ones that I've known, are risk takers. They, um, It's a reckless art. You have to be generous in spirit. You have to be worldly. You have to um, be able to give yourself over to another way of thinking. It's not for the inhibited. And translators so often presented as inhibited people. And I think it's actually the opposite. And I wanted to write about translators as the risk-taking, reckless renegades that I know them to be. <laughs> so in that way, I think it's both a mystery and a manifesto, this book, yeah. you know? I'm having trouble thinking of a ton of books with translators in them at all. But I, I mean, the one that comes to mind is uh, If on a Winter's Night, A Traveler, the Calvino, which has the evil translator in it. Yes, yes. Translators are often presented, you know, that way. Um, you know, uh, Mario Vargas Llosa's novel, The Bad Girl, has a translator in it who doesn't have a personality on his own, so he has to follow the bad girl. But I am the bad girl, and I find <laughs> that most translators are the bad girls. So we don't need to find anyone else. To, we don't need our authors to be the bad girls. We are the bad girls. Yeah. So Well, this is, feels like it touches on another um, – disappearance and this disappearance being the disappearance of of the translator so the translator traditionally historically is supposed to try to be invisible or, or at least that's the notion yeah. for the reader um, and you've you've put the translator as the hero in this book but we also seem to be going through a cultural phenomenon around translation where the visibility of translators all of a sudden is is um is really apparent. Uh, can it just, is that something you agree with? And, and I think it's a. It's we're really living a, 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 a sort of watershed moment for translators in in the United States and maybe even globally. And you know, women were supposed to be invisible for a long time too, and we've moved on. 
<laughs> and I, I think, you know, that that's, that's also happening for, for translation as well. And that, you know, um, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I mean, in, in history, I think that, um, you know, translators, unless they were translating religious texts and were killed for heresy, tended to disappear. And women writers, you know, unless they died tragically, usually, or kill themselves, they also tended to disappear from the, you know, official record. And so writing this as a woman writer and as a translator, I was very aware that there was a good chance that maybe I would disappear. And also, I think that there is something um, freeing about knowing that maybe history isn't paying that much attention to mm. you. Why follow the rules? They weren't really written for me anyway, you know? So I just wrote the book, you know, that I was thought um, would be the most exciting to write. And um, I was like, well, the world will make of it what it will. And that was sort of, I felt very freed by thinking that way. Do you, do you feel like some of the new visibility around translators in the United States is is a result of the length of time we've spent not translating? And what I mean by that is, say somebody chooses to uh, translate Liz Spector or Bolaño, uh, in a, and these people aren't around anymore and have been huge in their home language forever, yeah. but we've ignored them and never brought them into English out of some sense of hubris, perhaps, um, yeah. that the translator is the visible person, and without them, we wouldn't even have the books. In well, a way that if they were coming out gradually... Like if every yeah. time this person was writing a book, we were getting it just like we do with the English books, it might not, the translator might not feel as prominent. Yeah, I think the motivation to translate, you know, and especially something I was trying to write about in Ways to Disappear is that Emma doesn't want to be prominent as a translator. And I think if you go into translation, you're not looking for prominence. You're looking to get this book into your language to share it with other people. So I think it's a very generous impulse to translate a book. And this is such an incredible book. And I want other people to know, have the experience of reading it. And so, you know, I, I want, it was important to me to write that scene where she's reading it out loud with Marcus, hasn't, hasn't read um, Marcus, who is the um, missing author's son. And so when Emma, the translator in the novel, is reading it with Marcus, she's saying, wasn't this the whole point of translation to share these words in this order with someone who hadn't read them before and who could experience them and then they would become part of their inner life? And I think that's the motivation to translate. I think it doesn't come... I don't. I think if you're looking to be the biggest name on the cover, the biggest name anywhere, you you wouldn't do it. Uh, I wasn't you know? suggesting it as yeah. a motivation, but more yeah, as yeah, a yeah. sort of a, a side effect of the lack mm. of translation. Like for yeah, instance, yeah, yeah. when you or Katrina Dodson translate a book in, of Clarice Lispector, we don't have Clarice Lispector. So as part of that is this lack of interest in translation, and all of a sudden, this sudden interest. It feels like. Uh, the translator is becoming foregrounded in a way that yes. maybe they wouldn't have. Well, previously. I think I think it's you know if you go to university and you're going to study economics, would you ever just study American economics? Of course not. No, you would have to know what's going on. You're going to study food. You're going to go and study food. Could you ever just study American food? Also, you would die. But you would have to <laughs> study food from all over the world, right. right? Because whatever we're eating here has been influenced by food happening elsewhere. And I think whatever writers are eating, whatever readers are eating, is also playing into what we write and what we read. And so I think that, um, sadly, that um, you know, literature departments and uh, writing departments have been slow to be more global in perspective in the ways that I think it's happened elsewhere in, in, in conversations. It's just... 
it took a little longer, but we're living in a global area. It's kind of a global era. It's, 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 um, how could we not have a global conversation about literature? Well, let's, let's have our listeners hear yeah. some of Ways to Disappear. Do you have a section you could read? I'm happy to read uh, from the beginning. So, you know, since we talked about it, how it opens. So this is from the very first page in uh, Rio de Janeiro. In a crumbling park in the crumbling back end of Copacabana, a woman stopped under an almond tree with a suitcase and a cigar. She was a round woman with a knob of gray hair pinned at the nape of her neck. After staring for a minute up into the trees, she bit into her cigar, lifted her suitcase onto the lowest branch, and climbed up after it. Would you look at that, one of the domino players in the park said, as the woman climbed higher, exposing the frayed elastic of her cotton underwear and the dimpled undersides of her thighs. The domino players were about to break for lunch, but didn't think it was right to leave a woman sitting in an almond tree with a cigar and a suitcase. Julio, the ladies' man, was selected to investigate... To prepare for the task, he gave a pinch to the tips of his mustache and checked the alignment of his suspenders. At the base of the tree, he look up, looked up and found the woman's ample behind looming directly over his head. To see the rest of her, he had to shuffle over a step and saw that she had opened a book across her lap as if she were sitting at a train station. Senora, could I be of assistance, he asked. The woman thanked him for inquiring, but said she'd been looking forward to this day for some time and was perched there so serenely with her open book and cigar that Julio wished her well and he went home for some beans. You've been listening to Idra Novi read from her novel Ways to Disappear. There's some great ways in which formally you experiment in this book that I really love. You you have these, uh, you have the conventional narrative essentially, and then it's broken up and punctuated by these really short chapters, which may be a, an email or a news report or the, these very uh, comedic uh, definitions of words that interweave and sort of bleed into the are influenced by the narrative at large and and um, echo things that are happening in the book, but are also presenting us with word definitions. Tell us how those ended up becoming part of this narrative. Well, I think you know goes back to sort of writing, you know, off the off the off the grid in a way. Um, and I thought, why not just keep myself surprised on every page and. Um, if something wasn't surprising me and challenging me as a writer, I just deleted it. Maybe because I come from poetry, I have no problem with the delete button. I am a deleter. And I would just start again. Mm -hmm. And if something didn't feel radical and new to me and exciting to write, I would just try something else. So I really approached it with every section, um, trying out something new. Why not? Yeah. That and, was my thought. And did you have any um, touchstones for the, the noir thriller aspect of this? Because... We're, we've been talking so far about this as a meditation, but it really reads also like a thriller um, with a lot of of plot activity that's happening in Brazil. Um, so can can you talk to any um, any influences you had in that regard? Um, you know, when I was growing up, my dad loves reading mysteries, um, and they didn't really appeal to me, the straight up mystery, but he was always talking about them. We watched, you know, Murder, She Wrote and, you know, um, public British public theater mysteries on TV. And, and so I was always aware and always talking about this. And so I just grew up talking about sort of the mystery genre and mystery plots. And, um, I, so I think it was just part of something we talked about as a family and did together. Um, but my interest was really living in the language. So I think this book was a way to kind of 
do both. And um, I, I also think that uh, once you come up with a mystery thriller plot line, it keeps the book taut. It keeps it moving. And then you can hang all of your manifestos on it like laundry on the line. <laughs> it's kind of great. Yeah. No, I, I thought it, I, I did think it had this great pacing to it. It was tumbling forward. But some of the my favorite moments are within this international thriller. We have these uh, moments that are really funny where you you weave in uh, translation philosophy. Like you have that scene about domestication. That is, I, I'm not going to spoil it for people, but but if you could just briefly do a nod towards what that is, what is domestication and what is foreignization in, in translation? Yeah. Could, could you give so, us the, the um, 101 on that? I will give you the 101.5. And it is that uh, when you're translating, you can make something something that will be more familiar to your readers, which would be to do the domestic, which would be to domesticate. And if you're going to keep something closer to what it would mean in the original, then you would be foreignizing. So if we were talking earlier about the word embora, you know, voembora. So you could just, you know, leave it in the Portuguese and then use the context around the word, the phrase in Portuguese to explain what it is. But can break the spell in a book to leave something in another language. So I really try not to do that unless you absolutely don't have another word for it. So I think you have to be careful. When are you going to leave a word? You know, if it's a food, maybe you would leave the food, but if people aren't going to recognize it's a food, they might think it's a bird on the table. Maybe it's, you know, who knows what it is. So you have to be very careful about foreignizing and, and domesticating. So I was, I've always interested in how you can take these terms and make them metaphorical, or maybe how do they apply to human relationships? Because I think what's so beautiful about translation is that it really can be a metaphor for everything. Mm -hmm. It can be a metaphor for so much about human experience. And I think that question of domesticating and foreignizing is very much a question that you have as a person of how you explain yourself to someone else. Do you explain yourself in terms that the person you're speaking to will understand in terms of their view of the world? Or do you explain yourself in terms of your own view of the world and or try and find somewhere in between? And so um, I think that plays out a lot uh, in, in relationships, you know, like do, do, do you express frustration to, to someone? in terms that will be most meaningful to them? Or do you express your frustration in terms that are most meaningful to you? Unless, of course, you have some sort of miraculous relationship in which you live on the same terms. But I think that doesn't happen that often. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe this is one way I was invited to make metaphor from these these translation terms. But to me, it, the ways to disappear felt like a narrative of foreignization, in a sense, yeah. in the way that we go along with Emma into a culture where she can only partially read the signs and sim symbols of this culture. So we're in Brazil, and she's trying to do what she thinks is best to try to find her author, but that's not happening in a linear fashion because the signs and symbols she's reading are not entirely translatable into an American's perspective while she's there. Well, I think when you travel, you find out what you don't know. You, you, you think you know, you bring your guidebook, maybe you read before you go. But when you travel, I think we do travel, uh, I do, to find out what I don't know. And you don't know what you don't know until you get there. And I think when you leave your comfort zone, however you leave it, um, even I think when you do sort of, you know, some kind of random adventures online, when you like click on things online as the, you know, the author in the book does with her online poker, it's a way to find out what you don't know about yourself and about other people, you know, I mean, and so I think that was something I was really interested in and how even just opening going on Google is in some way kind of a form of 
travel. I think that's what's so fascinating about it because you can't click your way down some alley. It may not be a physical alley and, you know, Salvador de Bahia as the novel has a scene in an actual alley um, with some guns. But I think, you know, when you click, you kind of click down some alley and you get to some place that you don't know where you're going until you get there. So I, I was interested in playing with sort of the online poker world and online life and how you can be going somewhere that no one knows you're going mm. um, and may not catch up with you. And then when you actually travel, you also can kind of get yourself back into an alley uh, that you didn't expect to find yourself in. And, and all of your books have the, a sense of traveling in the title. Yes. <laughs> uh, Exit Civilian, Clarice the Visitor, The Next Country, uh, Ways to Disappear. There's a sense of, of movement travel across yeah. borders, perhaps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, talk to us a little bit about your poetry collection, Clarice the Visitor. You mentioned before that in translating Clarice Lispector, you're having a conversation with an imagined proxy for the author, in a sense, yeah. as you, you work on it. But you, you, you literalize that in this poetry collection with an actual conversation with her between her and your poetry. Well, Clarice, Clarice the Spectre had two sons, and these letters were written when her sons were small. And I was translating her when I my two sons were small. And I was traveling, and she was traveling, and she was writing and trying to figure out these things. And I was translating her, where I was also working on this novel and figuring out these things. And she would talk about her sons and her writing and her travel. And I was reading it while I was dealing with my son's my writing and my travel. And it just felt like there was, uh, I, and she would say things that I would find make, made me a bolder person and made me a bolder writer. And so she became kind of, um, you know, which I think is the best thing that you can find in, an, in a writer is someone who can um, free you up to be the truest version of yourself. Mm. And so I'll always be grateful to her and to those letters because I think that did that for me as a writer and as a translator, translating, you know, her. I had to be true to who I was as a translator and my relationship to her work, which wouldn't be the same of another translator. I mean, we all, you bring yourself to whatever you do only in the way that you can, you know, you can't create some construct. There is no objective construct you can bring to any job. Right. Um, would you mind reading a couple poems from I would from be it? happy to. So each of these poems in Clarice the Visitor begin with a quote from these letters. And they the letters are between Clarice Lispector and a friend of hers, another novelist who was in Brazil, whose name was Fernando Sabino. So this quote is from a letter she wrote to him in 1956. Here the cold is starting, which without meaning to, changes our lives. Um, and this is the poem I, I wrote after thinking about that quote and running around with all of these different translations and writings um, happening all in the same day. Down into the night of it, the blight of a word from a dark farm which may fog continuously. Down to the symbol of it and wondering at 5 a.m. if it's the winter in translation that makes people distrust it. These dust hours of doubting. Down again to the hesitation which may or may not turn into the stamen of a flower. Stamen loosed from the Greek for man's house and now there's that lodge. Down then to etymology or back to filament, to flowering, up all night. That's great. It's fun to have a chance to read these. Thank you. 
Um, so uh, this is called, this was, was later in the series, uh, and the, the little quote at the top is from, is from 1953 when Lispector wrote to Fernando Sabino and said, this is a letter for sharing news and complaints. And I thought it was in some ways something that could happen. I've done this. We almost have to ask, uh, to apologize for um, complaining to a friend and um, how often, you know, that, that can happen when you are a writer and a parent or have a writer and also have a day job and you're doing all these things and there's just not time to be all these versions of yourself which are necessary and urgent and you know what do you do with all those all those versions of yourself these slivers that even though you can't reconcile them you can't live without them either so this is uh this poem these letters c are my geese to you they come backward in the formation of a letter from an alphabet that can only be flown so much geese work leaves me fat and baffled, my vocabulary slack with Latinates. I miss my sleek ears, slender with the certainty of what I knew. What's terrifying about you, C, is that you know what you don't know, what none of us do. But I have to go. My sons want me to speak in puppet. And so it is performing your words. I'm a blue-faced creature with seams between her fingers, a being with no eyelids who can bow but cannot blink. You've been listening to Idranovi read from Clarice, the visitor. There's this great thing you say in the preface to this book. You, says, you say, what does the visitation of an author's voice do to your relationship with your own mind? Mind being the place where thoughts come and go, but mind also being a verb meaning to be troubled by as well as to obey. And you also have written elsewhere about the poet James Wright who, like you, is from Appalachia, and like you, has uh, translated Latin American poets. Cesar Vallejo. So you've, you've written about how his work has changed pre and post translating uh, Latin American poets. So I would love it if you could speak to that, and then in relation to that, speak to how your ventures into translation have changed your writing or what you see when you're when you were making ways to disappear that felt like it came from your activity as a translator not the translator as protagonist necessarily first i have to tell you that i love this question and nobody has asked me this and i'm so happy to talk about this because james wright when i first read him in high school living in my little uh dying town which was dying before i was born in it is dying even you know more fast more 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 quickly now. Um, only 30% of my high school class went to college. I think it's probably less than that now. Uh, and uh, so there wasn't a lot of reading or writing going on, and there wasn't a lot of literary culture. I wrote a play in high school, and, you know, nobody said anything about it in the school paper, you know, only the theater people came. And so I think James Wright, you know, he has his famous poem about um, the stadium in, in Ohio and uh, the football players galloping, you know, suicidally against each other's bodies. And I, I think that poem really spoke to me because I grew up watching the football players galloping suicidally against each other's bodies. And that adverb is so spooky and precise of mm. the way that there is something self-destructive about um, having a life with no room in it for reading and for um, thinking beyond your own life. Uh, for me, that I, I can't imagine, you know, not having art and literature and, and 
in, in my life. And so I think for the same reasons, James Wright knew he had to get out of there. He did not want to gallop suicidally against other people's bodies for the rest of his life. And so he, if you look at his poems before he started translating Cesar Vallejo and other Latin American poets, they are realism. And once he started translating Latin American poets, the slippery realism comes in, hmm. you know, there's that beautiful poem where the women from the whorehouse go into the water and they come up on the other side of the river. And I read that and I was like, yes, it was the town I grew up in. I remember reading a um, thing in the paper that said it was the worst place in America for single women to live. That seemed telling. And it made me think of that James Wright poem of the women from the whorehouse going into the river, drowning and coming up on the other side. And I think that is a kind of disappearing, but also a re resurrection mm -hmm. because they're resurrected on the other side of the river. And I think ways to disappear is about that, too. It's it, you disappear um, and as a form of self-annihilation to then resurrect yourself. And if you're not open to annihilation, you, there is no resurrection, which maybe seems apt to be saying after Easter weekend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there's two other there's two other ways that I found that I think it, that I think you've alluded to one of them that I would love you to talk about too about disappearance and one of them is the disappearance that is perhaps Latin American specific mm -hmm. in Argentina and Chile and political dictatorships yes and whether that is uh, being uh, alluded to in this book and the other mm -hmm. is gender is the disappearance of of women. We have the main, the movers of the plot in this book are women. Yeah. Um, and it's a woman translating. And Roberto Hoche, the editor. Yes. He's, yes. Yeah. But the main, the, the yeah. main agents, um, are, uh, in the book are mostly women. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And the woman translating a woman. So I'm yes. wondering about this, this issue of, um, the disappearance of women in, in literature also. Well, you know, I, when I was working on this book and then afterwards I wrote something about it, about, I looked at, I kept an eye out, of course, while I was writing this about books with other disappearances. And it, I was fascinated by how many books there are in which women aren't seen until they've disappeared. And, um, you know, they, that, you know, you're, you only see women often in stories and how they satisfy other people's needs because they bring the food, because they clean the house, because they care for the children. They're stuck in all these domesticating roles. And then perhaps they choose to foreignize <laughs> and they choose to get out of town and right. swim across the river and resurrect themselves on the other side as somebody else. And so I think, um, that became, I saw how there is this real feminist element to the act of disappearing and how often you can't be seen until you're physically missing. Mm -hmm. And I think that Elena Ferrante, the Italian writer Elena Ferrante's phenomenal reception is because she is physically invisible. And that's interesting too, because I was thinking of her as an example of how visible her translator is as well. Another yes. woman who was on, I think it was the cover of the New Yorker, an article in the New Yorker yeah. that said the face of Elena Ferrante. And it was a... I think with uh, Elena Ferrante that when you don't have a woman's body to picture on the cover or anywhere, you only can reckon with the work. Mm -hmm. And there was a really interesting study that showed that when orchestra uh, tryouts happen, um, and I think it was Cheryl Strayed who wrote this in the New York Times Book Review, um, and the and the people and, and the musicians trying out are playing behind a curtain. That uh, women musicians are much more likely to get a, a seat in the orchestra. Mm. And then when the they only their music was heard and 
that it, no one could see what body what, of the gender of the person playing the music. They were more likely to get a seat in the orchestra. And I think that Ferranti got her seat in the orchestra of you know, must read literature because no one can see who's playing behind the curtain, who is playing those sentences. We can't see her. And she got a seat in the orchestra. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you have two, you have two more poems in Clarice, uh, a visitor, the visitor that I'd love for you to read on, um, that speak to this issue of, of gender and, and visibility, I think. Oh yes. This is a doozy. You know, I, I, I wrote a lot of these poems on the New Jersey transit on my commute. Um, and it's interesting how, as you said, so many of my books have. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Have something about being in motion. And I do think maybe I, I, I feel freer. I feel bolder to write when I'm in between places. And so not when I'm at home or, you know, sort of on my, on my plane ride here. I was writing some things down. Because I think when you're up in the air in a plane or you're in, in, you know, in your mind between languages or on, on your commute, that your, your time isn't, you're not beholden to anyone or anything. And it's very freeing. And you can maybe come up with something that you wouldn't let yourself say otherwise. Mm -hmm. So this is one of those poems. Dear C, feeling stuck today, luckless, the puckered skin around a scar. At a luncheon, a man tucked up to say translation was once considered women's work. Did I know it, lowly as literary dishwashing? Alchemy, too, I told him, was seen once as mere cooking with gold. It grows so old, the effort of diplomacy. Did you ever imagine vanishing behind a giant Chinese fan? I picture the fan covered with hundreds of flying oven mitts, a dozen winged iron pans, all of them soaring, airborne as women, after centuries deferred. This is the next section. If a woman translates a woman, writes a woman who sculpts a pleasant something out of clumps of bread, if the clatter of earrings, if the clumps become less pleasant, can no longer be called the tender rendering of bread, if a woman translates a woman, writes a woman who is less and less, if the flesh of bread, if pressed between fingers and folded, if the word for rolling, for oratorio and deadline, if collapsing beside, if collapsing under, if the subtle clatter of earrings is... I love this connective tissue between this book and Ways to Disappear. I mean, obviously, all writers have that have connective tissue between their work, but you really sense this resonance between the concerns in those poems, I think. And, well, and, thank and you. The this novel. is the first interview where I've gotten to read these poems together with the novel, so I'm oh, thrilled. Thank good, you. Good, good. You were, you were mentioning books where... where um, there are disappearances that you looked at other books with disappearances. I'd be curious at what what some of those were, and also if you also looked at any expatriate literature, literature of Americans abroad, and writing about those experiences when you were writing Ways to Disappear. Well, in Toni Morrison's Beloved, um, Beloved is a ghost to begin with, and then disappears. And I think that is part of what makes that such a radical novel that her existence is in question from the start, and even her specter of an existence is questionable. And so what happens when you're a ghost to begin with and then you disappear? And I think that uh, says a lot um, about uh, women characters and women's history. Hmm. And what about expatriate literature? Is, was, was there any, like I think of um, Under the Volcano or 
yeah. or uh, Sheltering Sky? Like, were there books that you looked to in that regard? About oh, yes. Someone, uh, oh, uh, yeah. I love the stories abroad. of Mavis Gallant. And um, Under the Volcano and, and also James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room mm-hmm. were really pivotal books for me, I think, because uh, James Baldwin has, has, has a number of statements, both in Giovanni's Room and he's written elsewhere, about how to have a truly independent mind and to see what your country has uh, has has input in your sense of both yourself and, and and the culture and the history that you came from, you have to step back away from it. And I think growing up in a in a region like Appalachia, and um, also just seeing what it's like to be uh, an American woman in a place that was said to be one of the worst places for single women in the United States, I had to get out of here. <laughs> I had to get out of here and figure it out. Yeah. And so I did. Yeah. Well, for people who are listening who are maybe having their interest peaked around translating. Can you talk about how you started? What what was your process of becoming a translator? I did a little translation in college um, and had some, as you know, as can happen, just have some professors who really um, encourage you right when you're trying something new. And I had a great professor named Licia Fiolmata who taught this class called Experimental Latin American Women Writers. I was at Barnard, and uh, which is a women's school. And I think that class probably shaped the rest of my life. I wrote to her after I sold the novel and said, thank you, Licia. It was through you that um, I found the man I married. I found the books I translated, and I wrote this novel. So I basically, you know, should give her, um, you know, share the vans, I think. <laughs> but that class, in that class, we read Clarissa Spector. We read um, Maria Luisa Bombal. We've read um, a number of the uh, Alejandra Pisarnik. All of these experimental Latin American women writers whose work really was writing against um, these male-dominated traditions. And because they weren't visible and people weren't paying attention, they were innovating in ways that just blew open the barn doors of my mind. And I think it changed the way I saw literature and also what I could do as a mm. writer. And so then I decided to study abroad in Chile. And then I ended up moving to Chile. Um, that was when I decided I wanted to learn uh, Portuguese. And I ended up getting, you know, working and moving then to Brazil. And so that class really led to a lot of things. But when I was in Chile, um, I volunteered at a domestic violence shelter. And I ran kind of this like poetry group where I brought in poems for the women in the shelter. And um, I came across this Louise Glick poem that I really liked and one by June Jordan. And I thought they would really resonate with the women in the shelter. So I translated them into Spanish, very rudimentary Spanish. But I it came from that place of saying, I really want to share these poems mm-hmm. with these readers that um, I think will be meaningful to them. So it came from the right place, you know, um, even if perhaps if I saw those translations now, I would have to run out of um, the Cabo studio. But um, so um, and I realized how powerful it was to do that. Uh, and I think that was when I saw um that, that beautiful uh, reciprocity that can happen when you have an interaction with a piece of writing that you love, and then it becomes something that you recreate, and then you get to share it with somebody else. You've said before that the commonly held belief that you have to be fully bilingual in order to translate is not true. Can you talk about that also for curious listeners? Um, you don't actually need to be able to be fluent in, the, in the other language? 
when uh, Gregory Rabassa was translating uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, people said to him, I think it was, it was when he was translating 100 Years of Solitude, people said to him, do you think um, your Spanish is good enough? And he said, I hope my English is good enough. Mm. Because what he needed to do was recreate the book in English. What you need to do is make that book come alive in the language you're recreating it in. So you really have to be um, a lyrical writer in, 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 in English. But you have to have some basic understanding of the language. Oh, that... I, I think a basic understanding is probably <laughs> great, but you don't need to be able to um, have a conversation in that language. It's a reading knowledge. It's not a speaking knowledge. Sure. I think the general rule I say when students want to take a translation workshop is that you should at least be able to read the newspaper and grasp what's happening. In yeah. it. Because the thing is, with literature is all about subtext. So in order to translate, you have to be able to grasp the subtext, the unsaid in another language. So if you can grasp the unsaid in another language, then you can translate. So you need to at least be able to have a reading knowledge that allows you to pick up on subtext. But that's also just, I think, an intuitive thing. Some some people just are quicker to pick up on subtext. Well, let me let me push back against that a little bit yeah. and ask you another question. So you've, you've recently agreed to co-translate in a language that you don't speak or yes. understand. So tell us a little bit about that project. And I'm imagining the co-translation is partly to hedge against not being able to read the unsaid in the language that you're you're going to co-translate. Well, in my, um, I guess, insatiable need to constantly be traveling, not on the New Jersey transit, however, but in <laughs> via translation, um, you know, via American Airlines to get uh, to Portland today. So my co-translator is actually a graduate student at the University of Oregon, and I'm going to see him later today, uh, Ahmad Nadalizadeh. And and um, he approached a colleague of mine, C.K. Williams at Princeton, who then put him in touch with me. So Ahmad got in touch with me and said that he was translating a very talented young Iranian poet and wanted a co-translator who was a poet who had some experience with translation. So I opened the document with the thought of just looking at these poems because I had my edits due on Ways to Disappear to my editor and um, was teaching full time and thought, you know, I but this sounded like an exciting project and I wanted to find someone to work with him. But as has happened with every book that I have agreed to translate, I was so taken with these poems and they haunted me. And I thought that I couldn't, it would be a crime one for them not to be translated as well as they could be. And I wanted to be part of making that happen. Yeah. So that was why I said yes to the project. So I'm meeting Ahmad later today um, at an Iranian restaurant near Powell's before the reading tonight. Um, and that was that was how I got into that project. But I'm 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 excited by the uh, innovative process of translating from a language that I don't speak yet. I hope right. to always, always be moving into some kind of literary project that is new to me, because I think when you keep doing that act of resurrection of yourself as a writer, then you don't become a caricature of yourself. You're always sort of inventing a new way to create art. And do you have any other projects on going on now that you can uh, let us know about? Well, I just published a story in American Scholar called Under the Lid. Um, Which is very good for our listeners. I've read it. And it also has some resonance with Ways to Disappear, too, I think. Yeah, I think it comes out of the same place of slippery realism. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I've been living in Chile off and on for about 16 years. And so... Um, I wrote the story about a headless chicken that somebody, this actually happened, that um, a woman who practiced black, black magic, who uh, was uh, um, a woman who practiced black magic, 
was fired from a job and she put a curse on the factory where she had worked by hanging a headless chicken on the door, which led to uh, a counter curse from uh, another woman who practiced black magic and a series of brujas, of witches and brujeria ensued. And I was so fascinated by this headless chicken and it kept haunting me in the same way that the... A uh, woman climbing into the tree with her book and her cigar and her suitcase did in Ways to Disappear. And I think when an image stays with you and you have to figure out why, what it means and why that image is haunting with you, you know you have something there. Mm. And I think that Headless Chicklin was like that. <laughs> well, on that note, it was great having you on Between the Covers today, Idra. Thanks for having me. We are talking today to Idra Novi about her debut novel, Ways to Disappear. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also, while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>